the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. The world is full of people with broken hearts, broken spirits, and broken relationships. The pain of a broken relationship is very real, and the grief may feel debilitating. Why is it so difficult to make relationships work? Today's guest, New York Times bestselling author and mindfulness expert Susan Piver, applies classic Buddhist wisdom to modern romance to show that ancient philosophies have timeless and unexpected wisdom on how to love. Susan teaches strategies to connect more deeply with others. Her work has been featured on Oprah, Today, CNN, and in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Money, and others. In 2011, she launched the Open Heart Project, the largest virtual mindfulness community in the world. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Susan, you believe that the magic in life begins with a meditation practice. Why do you believe that meditation is so important in our daily life? If you want to and are physically and mentally healthy enough to attempt to try to slow your life down, slow your mind down, really listen to what's being said to you, really feel what's happening in your inner life, really consider carefully the decisions you make, then meditation can be your most extraordinary support, especially when the whole world is basically exhorting us to go faster, faster, faster. And it's easy to get lost in all the speed. So Susan, I am a type A person. I am very driven. I have a very difficult time quieting my mind, but I know that when I do meditate, I, I can experience tremendous benefits from it. I I feel like a different person when I do. Mm. It has been viewed for probably, I mean, for my whole life up until recently as kind of like a, you know, hoo-hoo-wee kind of thing for the hippies in Southern mm-hmm. California. And now people who are in the corporate world, people who are, let's say, quote-unquote, more mainstream, they're incorporating a meditative practice into their life. What is the science telling us about the benefits of meditation? Well, uh, it's telling us a lot. Science, thank you, science. It has told us it can reduce the stress hormone cortisol. It can reduce the recidivism rate uh, for treatments for depression by 50%. In other words, if you include meditation in your treatment protocol for depression, the likelihood that you'll relapse relapse is 50% less and it can help you manage symptoms with for illnesses with stress-related components like ulcers and diabetes and so on. It can help you get a better night's sleep. There are certain studies that have even shown that it can reset the quote happiness set point unquote. In other words, it gives you the capacity to be happier. I'm not sure how science measured that, but science has proven it somehow. <laughs> so and, and, you know, when it comes to the corporate mindfulness programs, I, I think that is fantastic. That is great because the potential for it to bring benefit in terms of innovation and communication and um, just workplace happiness, I think, is unparalleled. Your work has been geared toward helping people find inner peace and experience deeper joy in, in their relationships. Was there one thing that set you on this path of self-discovery? What brought me to the practice was 
you know, I, I read a book about it. This is I've been a meditator now for over 25 years. I, I've been a Buddhist for 25 years. And I read a book uh, about meditation a long time ago, obviously. I suddenly, it just made sense. Not There was no scientific research, so that's not the part that made sense to me. There were no promises of inner peace, so that's not the part that made sense to me. What made sense to me was this is a way to experience your life fully and in a very personal way outside of belief systems. That really spoke to me. I was a young woman, and it, it helped me find a sense of who I was in the world. So it was just a really interesting way, point of view. Uh, that's what really drew me to it. Susan, you wrote a book entitled The Four Noble Truths of Love, Buddhist Wisdom for Modern Relationships. What does Buddhist insight tell us about the true meaning of love? Well, I'm sure you've noticed, and I'm sure many of your listeners have noticed too, that meditation practice, and Buddhist meditation practice in particular, is famously associated with compassion. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, probably the world's best meditator, has said that his religion is kindness. So how is it that this practice, which, as you know, is not easy, but is very simple, you sit down, you breathe, you allow yourself to be as you are, you get distracted, of course, and then you come back. So you're not trying to shut your mind up or have no thoughts or anything like that. You're just trying to be with yourself as you are. How does that lead to compassion? I, I find that a really interesting question. So the answer I've come up with is as you sit, not trying to change yourself, not trying to say, hey, you in there, shut up, I'm trying to meditate, but instead being with your mind as it is agitated, as it is peaceful, as it is boring, as it is vicious, as it is beautiful, something inside of you softens. You soften toward yourself. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not very easy on myself. I'm mm -hmm. constantly trying to push myself. I'm sure you can relate, as, as most people, especially women, I would say, can. But meditation says, stop doing that. Just be with yourself. And this great softness begins to take root. And it, it, it's not just me that's saying that. It's, you know, 2,500 years of meditators that would, would tell you that. And from that softening toward yourself, naturally, organically, you begin to soften to others because it seems that's how we're wired. We're wired for kindness. But first we have to be kind to ourselves. We have to soften toward ourselves. And then a great well of compassion is, is available, not because we're trying to be nice people, mm -hmm. but because our hearts are touched over and over again by what we see around us. So it goes back to that self-love, that having that completeness inside of us instead of looking externally, because then once we feel whole, then we're able to give in a more loving way. I think that's right. I think that's right. However, I often find that when people say, I have to love myself first, or I have to be whole first, they're kind of mad at themselves for not being that way already. And you try to push yourself to like yourself, push yourself to be whole. And of course, then you've just punched yourself in the face, basically. There, that's not a good way to discover self-love, but by making it an agenda item or a purpose. But however, meditation practice has taught me that when you relax, stop trying to be different. Relax. This softness, this tenderness arises, and it is the opening. It, it is the gate to love. And P.S., I did not find that I had to love myself first before I could love somebody else. I didn't know how to love myself. It was the opposite for me. When someone loved me, then I could love myself. I saw myself through the eyes of love. So someone loved me first, and then I was able to love myself. So i just thinking it's not a hard and fast rule. It can work in both directions, even simultaneously. So Susan, as I said, I have a very busy mind. I'm doing a million things all the time. And, and I think there are many people out there who are like me. So are there any tips that you can offer to help someone like me get more out of a meditative practice? Um, you know, I, I know they say, let your mind wander and bring it back. Is that enough? Yes. And kind of no. I mean, your mind will wander. So 
it's more like your sort of like your thoughts and and I relate to you Joan I have a million thoughts too and a million things on my mind and you kind of imagine that your thoughts are like a bullet train and when you sit down to meditate you see oh my god it never stops in there it's just going a million miles an hour and in meditation you don't say stand in front of the train and go stop <laughs> because you know you'll just get smashed <laughs> meditation <laughs> meditation rather is sort of I'm going to get off the train and I'm going to sit on the banks and I'm going to watch it go by and it just goes faster and you know and you see well but you're not on the train anymore you haven't stopped the train you haven't changed the direction of the train but you're seeing it for what it is and you're kind of a little bit separate from it and that gives a space of relaxation and you start over time to align yourself more and more with the one that's sitting on the banks and less and less with the one who's on the train, although both continue to be true. But you reestablish your sense of identity as the one watching as a, rather than the one being taken for a ride. A few years ago, you were on this show and we talked about your book, Wisdom from a Broken Heart, Wisdom of a Broken Heart. In the years since then, what else have you learned from that experience that you went through? Oh, from heartbreak. Yeah, I learned so much, and I appreciate you bringing it up. It is the it is the tenderest topic, and I guess I could say that I learned that heartbreak, although it is completely devastating, heartbreak from lost love in particular, and I, in no way would I ever seek to minimize that. It is one of the most traumatic things a person can ever go through, and it's deeply, deeply painful. One of the things I learned was Again, even though it did not feel good, it felt the opposite. It felt horrible. Being in a situation that I could not game, no matter what I did, I could not make my pain go away, was instructive. It forced me to show up without my strategies because mm -hmm. my strategies didn't work. And it brought a kind of um, hard-earned wakefulness uh, which thankfully is gone. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yeah. I, I learned that I could see clearly when all of my things that I thought I had built for myself to keep me safe dissolved. Yeah, I, I, I know. I actually when, felt more wise. I, I know in my life, Susan, that the things that made me feel the worst in the end ended up making me feel the best. As, as crazy as that may seem, going through horrific experiences turned me into a much better person than I think I would have been had I not experienced them. That's so interesting. And, and I'm first, I'm sorry you had those terribly painful experiences. And I'm also really interested, and I think it's super cool that to hear you say the things that were the worst ended up being the best. That, that's so, like, can you get, say a little bit more? I, I'm really interested in that. Yeah, and, and what I mean by the best, I mean in the end, the best for my growth and development, not not the best like I'm so happy that they happened. And, and the things that I'm talking about are really what resulted in the work that I'm doing in a period of six months. Uh, my 23-year marriage ended. My mother died. My sister died. My oldest son left ah. for college. So it was like I had this life one day oh and this happened in six mm -hmm. months and then that life was gone and so when i say the best it's it's not like i'm happy that those things sure. happened but i would not be who i am today had i not gone through that pain i wouldn't be speaking with you today i wouldn't have this brand i wouldn't have this work none of the things that are occurring in my life right now i know would be happening had i not gone through that I get what you're saying, and I have to say that is a testimony to you, because there are, first, that's an unbelievably incredible six-month period, and there are people who go through things that just take refuge in bitterness, mm -hmm. and I understand, you know, things, I mean, life is really hard, but you found a way somehow to take refuge in open-heartedness, mm -hmm. and that's just great. You should feel so good about yourself. <laughs> well, what I've learned, Susan, is, and we all get to this crossroad, there are different types of roads that cross in our life, but we all have those moments. And we have the opportunity to go in one direction and to let it 
define us and create this victimhood in our life, or we can go in a different direction and try to work with what we have, see the blessings, find the love, the peace, whatever, all of that. But it's our choice. And that's something that I've learned. And and to be honest, I don't know where my strength came from, but it was there somewhere within me. And, And I think the work of people like you has had a major influence on my healing. So I thank you for what you do. Oh, that's nice. oh, that's very nice. You're welcome. And <laughs> I know that you're the one that did all the hard work. So I and I know what you mean that when it's amazing what you can actually meet. Even though in thinking about it in advance, you think, no, I can't. I cannot handle that. But you can. Exactly. And and tell us a little bit about the Open Heart Project. What is the goal of it? Um, I am a longtime meditator, as mentioned, and I've been a meditation teacher for 10 years, 12 years now. And I taught all over the world. I've been very fortunate to have a lot of teaching opportunities because I love to teach. Um, but I people need more than one weekend workshop or day-long retreat or evening talk to continue their meditation practices because we all need support for this practice. So there aren't a lot of places to go for support. So I thought, well, there's this thing called the internet, and I could offer support to anyone who wants it. And so I just sort of started it. I just said to, if you want a meditation video once a week, just give me your email address, I'll send it to you. And now it's like 20,000 people who get meditation instruction from me, and it's still free. And there are paid things within it, like subscription thingies and online courses and so on, but the purpose of it is to create a resource for people who want to meditate as a spiritual practice, as a practice of transformation, in addition to whatever other agenda we might bring to it, wanting to get a better night's sleep and be less stressed and so on, but to be able to offer support to anyone, anywhere, anytime, because meditation is kind of my life. I, I I, I think it's extraordinarily powerful. And so it's become my mission. I'm grateful that it has. If you'd like to get more information about Susan's Open Heart Project or any of her work, you can visit SusanPiver.com. Susan, in about 30 seconds or less, what's a takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Oh, that um, it sounds cheesy, but love is always always possible and it does it might not look like what you think susan thank you so much for spending time with us today and for sharing with us some of the wisdom that you've learned over the years you're so welcome it's a delight to talk with you thank you too this is conversations with joan stay with us we'll be right back How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. If you're a person living with any discomfort, have trouble sleeping, or the many other issues that come with getting older, I have great news for you. You have a chance to do something for yourself and at the same time help a U.S. veteran. My name is Janice Coviello. For years, I've been living with knee pain and discomfort every time I did something active, even walking. But after eight knee surgeries, countless bottles of Advil, and hyaluronic acid injections, I was desperate for relief. My doctors told me a knee replacement was my only option. To avoid another surgery, I found another solution, a transdermal gel known for reducing joint pain, faster recovery from injuries, enhancing strength, and promoting natural tissue repair. I started using the gel with amazing results. For the first time in 17 years, I could run without Advil. In addition, I sleep better and have so much more energy. But just don't take my word for it. Go to foreveryoung.org to learn how the purchase of this product can benefit you and also help a U.S. veteran. That's the number foreveryoung.org.
Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Heidi Rome, an autism mom coach and founder of Mom's Spectrum Oasis. Heidi's Autism Hope Mindset System empowers a mom to take back her life while creating a bright future for her Spectrum child. She's here today to discuss forgiveness and the autism journey. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. So Heidi, we all hear so much about the importance of forgiveness, but can you explain to us how forgiveness plays into the autism journey? What is there to forgive? Well, you're right, Joan. You, you might be surprised to think that there is anything to forgive on the autism journey. After all, no one deliberately or even unintentionally hurt anyone else, right? It, it's nature. It's medical. Uh, you know, autism is a neurological condition that shows up after birth with impact that ranges unpredictably across the full spectrum from unnoticeably minor to life-alteringly profound. So who or what is there to forgive? Well, you you may not be surprised to learn that there are actually several parties. Uh, The first one would be God. Why would God cause an innocent little child, my child, to suffer? You know, my baby is too young to have done anything wrong to deserve such a harsh sentence. Many of us become very angry with God. I know I did. And there's a burden, though. There's a burden of having something to forgive. So in the case of needing to forgive God or wanting to forgive or thinking about forgiving God, the burden there is rage and fear. It's a double whammy of powerful negative feelings that can really make you question your personal faith and can drain the joy from your life. The next party, and this might be a surprise, is yourself. Many autism moms have shared with me that they blame themselves in some way for their child's autism. I think it it gives us a false sense of control. You know, if I'm to blame for it, that means that I have some control over it. And so maybe just as I caused it, I can fix it. I know that I blame myself. My husband and I were both older parents, a factor correlated with autism. We used assisted reproduction, and Ethan, my son with autism, was a frozen embryo. Uh, And both of those factors are also correlated with an increased autism risk. We moved from New York to New Jersey, the state with the highest rate of autism in the country. So we can blame New Jersey for this. Mm -hmm. I ate two tuna sandwiches during pregnancy due to my cravings. And so maybe I ingested some mercury that could have harmed the developing baby in some way. Ethan was a C-section, so no microbiome-protecting trip down the birth canal for him. He was vaccinated against six diseases in two injections within 10 seconds at age six weeks. And that day is is actually my own regretful, recurring do-over fantasy, you know, in my mind's eye even now. You know, why didn't I I spread out those vaccinations? Ethan received massive doses of antibiotics during a two-night hospital stay for RSV at age three months as he struggled to breathe. 
And, um, you know, best for last, um, the last panel of genetic testing done on Ethan when he was 10 years old showed that he may have, it's not conclusive, a rare form of fragile X. So that's a bonus blame point because since the defective gene is on the X, the female chromosome, it is carried by mom, which is me. So can I forgive myself for wanting a second child so desperately that I was not going to let anything or anyone get in my way for closing my eyes to the risks and statistics and news items and really denying that there was a possibility that my script for a perfect family might not play out exactly as I had insisted upon envisioning. So the burden here is grief and guilt. And then finally, you know, who else is there to blame on the autism journey? Everyone else in the world who does not have a child with autism. And so that's kind of most of the world (laughs) to forgive. And especially the family and friends who disappeared in the months following the diagnosis, the people who just did not know what to say or what to do in the face of my own unbearable pain and my child's difficult off-putting behaviors. So the burden there of having something to forgive is shame and, and isolation. So Heidi, you've been able to get through all of what you just described. From that experience, what do you believe are the benefits of forgiveness? Well, I am defining forgiveness as the choice to lay down those burdens, the guilt, the shame, the isolation, the grief, the regret, the choice to lay those burdens down and to not focus anymore on the very thing that causes us the most pain. So imagine how delightful, what a relief that would be. My father used to describe this idea through the analogy of taking off your tight shoes, you know, that that, ah feeling. Sometimes you don't know how uncomfortable you've been and the pain you've been putting up with in the background until you've taken action to take care of what you really need. So forgiveness is the choice to accept with love and compassion the reality of a situation that has already happened, rooted in the past where it can no longer change. It is the realization that all of us human beings are doing the best we can with what we know and believe right now, And that we can't expect anything from people that they cannot or are not ready yet to give. There's no judgment here. It's not about right or wrong. We didn't know then what we do know now. Because what we focus on is what grows in our lives, it is time to let go of these burdens that anchor us miserably to a past memory or past decision. Forgiveness lets us consider something closed, finished, done. Enough already. It lets us then uproot the pain to build a tunnel to travel away from the remains of the old suffering and to rejoice that the acute illness of grief and fear is done and we are on the road to recovery. Finally, forgiveness allows us to replace the old story, the old victim identity with a new, more empowered, happier story and identity so that we can live with the past without being its prisoner. On the autism journey, we can only move forward from here and now, choosing to keep only the learning that serves us into the future and releasing any beliefs, expectations, rules, or behaviors that cause us pain and separate us from God, from ourselves, or from others. We can control the fact that the autism diagnosis happened or how we or other people chose then to respond to it. What we can control is ourselves now, our own choices, our own emotions to focus on, our own path where our child's and our own greatest potential lies. When we let go of our burdens, our hands and our hearts and our minds are now open and free to connect with others to accept help and to create new possibilities and a new love-based, not fear-based reality for our amazing special children and for ourselves. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Heidi and her work, you can visit moms 
spectrumoasis.com. That's moms with an S, momsspectrumoasis.com. And as always, to hear more from Heidi, you can visit cyacyl.com slash Heidi. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Violence was a way of life for the girls at Mott Middle School in the South Bronx. Some woke up to it at home, and others dodged it on the way to school. Vicious physical fights broke out in classrooms, hallways, and bathrooms. These girls filed their fingernails into sharp points because they had to be ready to fight at any time. Then, a new coach joined the ranks at Mott Middle, and a new program began, Girls Softball. Joining us today to talk about what happened in the concrete jungle is Dibs Bear. Dibs is the author of the book, Lady Tigers in the Concrete Jungle. Welcome, Dibs. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Dibs, what got you interested in this story? Well, I played competitive softball my whole childhood. And a girl that I played with, she's a coach now for a high school team, and she introduced me to Coach Estacio. And we immediately sort of connected. And um, I think he told me about uh, his team, but when he told me about the first year of the team in particular, I was kind of blown away by everything that happened in this very first year to the girls on the team and how they made it through the year. And it just, you know, it just incredibly inspiring. And so I just wanted to know more about it. And the more I knew, the more I really couldn't believe how extraordinary that team was that first year. In the introduction, I mentioned a little bit about what these girls experienced on a daily basis. Can you tell us more about what life was like for these girls before the coach came on the scene? Yeah, sure. I mean, so the school that they went to, and again, this is junior high, um, gang-infested neighborhood that you can't even, like, play outside. You can't really be on the playground at the school for that reason. Not only was school, outside of the school, dangerous, inside of the school was dangerous because the girls were fighting with each other. But then at home, each girl on the team had, you know, a really intense issue going on, whether it was physical abuse, uh, molestation, um, you know, poverty, alcoholism. A couple of the girls, like one girl, her mother was still living in, I think it was the Dominican Republic and, you know, didn't, wasn't, didn't have a parent with her in the Bronx uh, so it was it was just you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They were experiencing such incredible stress um, in so many different ways. And they just really had no safe place at home, in school, around the school. They just had, they really had nowhere to go. From what you just described to us, it, you know, it, it may seem like a program like this wouldn't succeed. So what was it like at first for the coach? How did he get the girls motivated and interested in the program? Well, I think originally they just showed up literally because they had nowhere else to go. They wanted to hang out in the gym. They didn't want to go home. They didn't want to go outside. So at first they didn't really care about softball. They just wanted to sit in the gym. Um, and at first he also had trouble connecting with them. I mean, they, he was their PE teacher and a lot of them didn't like him. They didn't like really anybody in authority, but slowly, I would say from the fall until Christmas, for him to really make inroads with them and earn their trust. And um, and it wasn't easy. And because he was dealing with, he was putting out fires constantly right. because the girls were pretty wild in school. Not all of them, of course, um, but a lot of them were, you know, some of the most notoriously troubled girls in the school. You know, he, he was dealing with uh, their problems in school. And, and at, the, at the beginning, he didn't really know what was happening in their home lives. He was really just focused on getting them to go to class. It really had not much to do with softball the first, like, you know, six months of the program. It was really about, yeah, so, and he just sort of, I think the more they understood that he was one of them, he grew up, you know, similarly to the the way they did in the Bronx, and 
he showed that the, he that he cared about them. And I don't think uh, a lot of the girls didn't really have a male figure in their life that cared mm-hmm. about them. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them, except for I think maybe a few, uh, didn't have fathers in their lives. Whether that meant they were not in the home, not living in the home, or just literally not in the girls' lives at all. And so his presence, they came to kind of appreciate him as like a father figure eventually, but it took a lot of work for him. These girls were used to thinking about themselves. I mean, they were in survival mode. It was them against the world. And now they had to be a team. They had to start to think about someone else and to work as a unit, as for the, the good of the whole. So the coach needed to win their trust, as you were saying, and he taught them so many lessons throughout this process. What happened to the girls throughout this journey? How did they change? Oh, they changed so dramatically. That that was what was so incredible. It was, uh, you know, they were they were literally not going to class. They were hanging out in the basement of the school, you know, with just like not going to class. They were fighting. And by the end of the season, like in the book, we have their progress reports from the beginning to the end and what their teachers say about them at the beginning and at the end. And the change is dramatic that they started doing their work. They started showing up to class. They stopped fighting. You know, they because eventually uh, Coach Astacio had given them very strict parameters on what they needed to do to stay on the team. At first, they he didn't do that. He didn't want to be too strict because he felt like if he was too strict, they just wouldn't show up. And then he realized he'd made a mistake and that they needed uh, a lot of uh, rules. And once they had the rules and they realized that they wanted to stay on the team, they followed them. And and it was, you know, incredibly, uh, incredibly powerful that some of the girls, you know, who were good students, but weren't trying, you know, they were starting to live up their, to their potential um, in school. And the girls also started bonding together more. That was one of the big issues in the beginning was that the uh, a lot of the girls on the team didn't like each other. There were two there were two big factions on the team, almost like two rival gangs in a way. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the season, you see that they finally kind of come together. And um, so there was just so many changes. That's I just that's why I was so blown away by it, that within a year, really, that there could be this amount of change with people, who, with girls who were really troubled. Dibs, what do you think is the takeaway from this story? I, th- I mean, I think there are a few takeaways. I think that um, I think one of the big ones uh, is that your your past doesn't necessarily have to ruin your future. I think also this team happened at a really pivotal time in their lives, you know, junior high. And I think that's a time where you can go one direction or the other. And so I think it was fate that the team happened at this particular time and showed them that, like, there could, there is hope. You know, even though they have really awful things going on in their lives, a lot of them, that you can get through it. There's so much resilience, too. The, the strength and resilience of these girls who were so young and going through such intense issues, and they made it through. A lot of them weren't even, were even supposed to graduate junior high. And they did. So I think it's about not quitting, resilience, um, having hope. The book is Lady Tigers in the Concrete Jungle by Dibs Bear. Dibs, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this inspiring story. As you said, there's always hope. And, you know, no matter what the challenge, we can overcome anything. So thanks for giving us this reminder. Thank you so much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Did you know that drinking coffee might actually be good for you? Hi, I'm Dr. Kyle Epicino, a chiropractor and founder of Health on Main, located in Little Falls, New Jersey. Coffee really does seem to protect the liver. Research has shown that drinking coffee may protect you from liver cirrhosis and even liver cancer. Other population studies have found that coffee drinkers tend to have a lower risk of Parkinson's disease, less prostate cancer, less diabetes, less depression, especially among women, and even weight loss among overweight subjects. There has been correlations that coffee drinkers tend to outlive their counterparts, the non-coffee drinkers, with mortality bottoming out at about four cups a day. So before you run out to your favorite Starbucks and spend a copious amount on your caffeinated beverage, here are some things that you'll need to consider. Dark roast, medium roast, or light roast, milk or soy milk, sugar or no sugar. Firstly, it seems that dark to medium roast coffee is more effective than light roast coffee in keeping the antioxidant polyphenols that come from the coffee beans intact. When you add a dash or splash of milk or even soy milk, that antioxidant activity decreased by more than half. If you make your coffee into a latte, it cut down the healthy effects of those antioxidants by about 95%. Finally, the sugar, one lump or two. Without citing a study directly, the answer would be zero. 
for the most beneficial effect on your health, try sipping a cup of plain black coffee. I'm Dr. Kyle Epicino. I can be reached at healthonmain.info or call me at 973-832-6722. You find it challenging to keep a positive frame of mind and well-being in your busy lifestyle? Are there so many things that you are responsible for that you find there is limited time and energy to care for your own well-being? Hi, my name is Laura D'Amato and I'm a certified reflexologist practicing in holistic healing therapy for wellness in mind, body, and soul. What if you were to take some simple steps daily that can improve your own well-being and make you feel more content, happier, and healthier? I specialize in helping people to improve their health by releasing stress, anxiety, and underlying causes of illness. Here are some tips for a recipe for wellness. Begin and end each day in gratitude. Look for the blessing in all your circumstances, even during the challenging times. Add an ample rest to help your body do the work it needs to do, even if that means taking a nap during the day. Feed your body healthy food by eating fresh, non-GMO vegetables and fruits while limiting processed foods. Drink water and bless and enjoy all that you eat. Add in 10 to 20 minutes of a mixture of sunshine, fresh air, and a form of exercise like walking. Sprinkle on much laughter, and you will have a recipe for creating your own well-being. This is Aura D'Amato. If you are interested in learning more, please view my website at auradamato.com, or you can book a healing session with me by phone or in person at 732-224-8441. At the end of your business day, are you asking yourself, where did the day go, and why didn't I meet the objectives I set out to accomplish? I'm Bertha Robinson, founder of Star One Professional Services. As a business consultancy, we help visionary business leaders take a people-centered approach to meeting their long-term growth objectives. Some of our clients complain about not meeting their goals and objectives in order to move their businesses forward. I'd like to share with you seven time strategy rules. Number one, resolve each item at the end of the day. If it's complete, check it off. If you didn't do it at the end of the day, decide when you will do it and transfer it to another day within the next 90 days. Number two, write things to do in the command form. For instance, begin with the verb go, do, call, etc. Number three, write one item per line. Number four, write one line per item. Number five, create a planned time allotted for meetings or specific tasks. Don't forget to plan for travel time. Number six, separate your must do today from should do today. Must do are those items where you have given your word. And should do are those items that if you don't get to, they're not so critical, you can move it to another time. Number seven, follow the rules. When you don't follow the rules, ask yourself why. To learn more on how you can achieve your long-term growth objectives, call me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit StarOneProfessional.com. Do you get worried about cold and flu season? Do you work in an area around a lot of people and tend to get sick at the drop of a hat? Hi, I'm Sarah Outlaw, owner of Natural Health Improvement Centers of South Jersey and Des Moines. I'm here today with a couple of tips to stay healthy during the cold and flu season. One of my family's favorite ways to stay healthy is with garlic ginger lemonade. This is something that you can do right from your own home with ingredients from your own kitchen. All you need is some hot water, some garlic, about two cloves, a lemon or two, and some raw honey. What you're going to do very quickly is cut up the garlic, put it in the bottom of a three-cup ball jar, pour in the hot water, let it sit until the water gets to about room temperature or so, add in the raw honey, add in the lemon, and then drink it. You can drink it room temperature, you can drink it hot, or you can drink it cold, and it will actually help your immune system to stay nice and strong and healthy. Really, kids like this? They sure will. My kids love it. They drink it all the time. You put enough honey in it where it actually tastes just slightly spicy and more sweet, and it's absolutely wonderful. For more information to get this recipe and other recipes, visit my blog, realfoodoutlaws.com. I hope you enjoyed this tip to stay healthy, my friends. How can you recover and get back to normal when you start to stress out? Hi, this is Angela Flakonchik from Bridge Management Consulting, offering teachable stress management skills. Use the stress stoplight three-step approach. Step one, rip. Stop and notice what's going on. Consciously aware of your negative thoughts. Step two, yellow. Slow down and refocus by introducing new thoughts. Slow down by taking three deep, calming breaths. Inhale for four seconds, exhale for five. Exhaling longer is important 
as you're breathing out the negative energy and with the inhale, giving your body oxygen to refresh itself. Then replace negative thoughts with safe thoughts. Say, I am okay, or I am calm over and over in your mind until you feel yourself returning to normal. Step three, breathe. Go forward with new calming thoughts, feeling refreshed and renewed. For more info on stress management and stress reduction services, visit bridgemanagementconsulting.com. want to help someone who could use a hand christmas can be the most wonderful time of the year but it can also be the saddest and the loneliest while many people experience the joy of the season blessed with abundance others struggle to put food on the table wouldn't it be wonderful to share your blessings with those less fortunate to let them know that they're loved and not forgotten through change your attitude change your life's third annual feed a family initiative you can provide a nourishing festive holiday meal to those in need working with local charities we'll be distributing box pre-cooked dinners. It's easy to help out. Simply visit cyacyl.com slash holiday meal. That's cyacyl.com slash holiday meal. It's time for To Your Health. Joining us today to discuss co-parenting issues is Rosalind Sadaka, the founder of the Child Center Divorce Network. Rosalind is a divorce and co-parenting coach and author of How Do I Tell the Kids About the Divorce? She is an advisor with nothing but advice. Welcome, Rosalind. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you today. So, Rosalind, with the current divorce rate, many children are being torn between two parents. What are some of the mental health issues that you see occurring when parents choose to separate? Children are so torn because they innately love both parents, even if one parent isn't treating them as well as the other. And so when you put them in a position to choose between both parents or to feel that they're losing one parent over the other, or even worse, if one parent is trying to alienate them from loving the other parent, it's very stressful for them emotionally and psychologically. It makes them feel insecure. They doubt themselves. They're confused about this support that they're getting from their parents. And it's a, a very difficult situation because they're trying to figure out how to handle it. And children, even teens, really can't cope with that on their own. Rosalind, I hear so many stories today about one parent post-divorce who may disappear from a child's life after the separation. What can the remaining parent do and what types of implications does that have on a child? Oh, that, that's very dramatic and, and sad when that happens because children have a tendency to blame themselves for circumstances in their lives. They don't have the maturity to understand the complexity and the drama that the adults are going through. So if a parent leaves for any reason, their innate reaction is to believe that in some level it was their fault, they weren't good enough, they weren't lovable, and that can last a lifetime of deep insecurity and wounds. So the parent who's there with them has to remind them to boost their self-esteem, remind them of their own value and that none of this is their fault even if the parents were fighting about the children, the children are always innocent. It's not their fault. And that parents have to explain that life is very complicated and there were issues that made one parent make a decision about that, but it isn't about the children itself. Uh, that It's good to get support from a professional in a situation like that because it's very complex for the parent as well as for the children. So in addition to a lack of self-esteem, what types of problems can this cause down the road? Can it lead to drug use, alcohol abuse? What should a parent be on the lookout for? And that's the important uh, message is to be on the lookout. Watch your children and talk to your children as much as possible. And when you see behavior that's off, don't put it aside, uh, take action immediately. Because yes, when a child has deep inner wounds and insecurities and fears and anxieties, it usually will bubble up into behavior changes. One being more aggressive and bullying and um, hanging with the wrong crowd. And on the other side, going, becoming more introverted, more insecure, feeling more suicidal. 
or blaming themselves. And either way, you've, you've got a, a child who has problems, who's needing support from adults. And as soon as possible, they, they need that to be recognized so that you can handle it. When a, children, a child gets support, they're able to move ahead with more confidence because the adults are reminding them that none of this is their fault. If they don't get that message early enough on, then they very often will go within and start blaming themselves and acting out in ways that are going to be um, detrimental for them no matter how they behave. Rosalind, if you could sum it all up, what would you like to leave our listeners with? What's the takeaway? Most important thing is to remember that you are a role model for your children in everything you do and every decision you make. And so you need to be making mature, responsible decisions despite your own personal pain, despite the frustrations you're going through, despite anger and other deep emotions due to a divorce or a breakup. And you have to look at what, how is this impacting my children? What are my children going to be saying about how I handle the divorce when they're grown adults? And what am I teaching children about how to handle conflict and, and drama that happens in life? Because life is full of those kinds of things. So when we make decisions, if we're keeping our children in mind and remembering our responsibility as a role model, we're more likely to make wise, mature decisions rather than reactive decisions that are just more emotionally based to reach out and hurt our former partner. And that makes all the difference in the world. Rosalind, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Nothing But Advice, you can visit their website, nothingbutadvice.com. And as always, to hear more about mental health issues, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash nothingbutadvice. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.